Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. Go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now we are going to be moving through a few different scriptures today. From John all the way to our focus text that was in the bulletin, which is Galatians 4. And the reason for that is we need to lay a foundation and a framework for what we're talking about. Now, while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. My freshman year of college, when I was 18, I had a friend of mine I had met while working at Nasoka Pines Ranch here in, in South Carolina, and we had become like best friends. We realized we thought the same. We had very similar callings. Uh, we, we were passionate about the same things. And, and our, our freshman year, we wanted to take that energy and try and do something productive with it. So being the, res- the responsible and, and the safe 18-year-olds that we were, we decided that the area of ministry we wanted to put our energies towards was picking up people off the side of the road. And get class credit for it too, which was, just happened to line up with a, a class project. And our, our, our idea was this. Anytime we would see someone hitchhiking or anytime that we would see someone stuck on the side of the road for car problems, we would pull over, see what we could do to help, and if they were hitchhiking, give them a ride up the road a bit. Now, we knew this was dangerous, so we never went unless it was just the two of us. We took that text where, where Jesus sends out the disciples in pairs. It's exactly what we did. Every time, we, our ground rule was that we do not do this unless we're together. That was our ground rule. And we had, we had some actually, we had some wonderful experiences. I remember one time we, we picked up a man on, on I-75 who was hitchhiking from Orlando up north to, do, to look for hurricane relief work because he had been homeless and out of work for a long time, and he'd, been, he, and he'd known that there was disaster relief and work that would come as a result of Hurricane Sandy's damage along the East Coast, and so he was working his way up north. His name was Barry. And we picked him up, and we took him, a few mu- we took him to McDonald's and bought him food, and I watched as he only ate half of a burger, and then he wrapped the rest of the burger up, and he put it in his backpack, and, he, and I asked him, I said, aren't you hungry? And he said, yes, but if I eat a lot now... In just a few hours, my stomach, my stomach is going to expect more. So he's rationing even what little food that he was getting. And we were talking with him, and it turns out he was raised, uh, you know, brimstone and hellfire Baptist. Very traditional, but he, um, he kind of lost his way a bit. And in our conversation with him, as we took him about an hour up the road, uh, we ended up being able to give him a Bible. And when we dropped him off at his place, at, at, at a, at a well-lit and well-populated exit, uh, he, we asked him, so Barry, where are you going to go next? And with tears in his eyes, he said, I'm going to find a light post to park under, and I'm going to read my new Bible. And he was so thrilled and so excited. And so that was one of the experiences that we had, but our first experience, our first experience was much different, and here's why. The first reason it was much different was because we did it at night. That was not the most brilliant decision we've ever made. And as we were, we were driving, we hadn't even made it to the highway yet. We were passing under the highway, and we saw this big van 
broken down on the side of the road and a bunch of young adults standing outside of it. And so we went up to them and we said, hey, what happened? They said, our transmission broke, went out, and we're stuck. So we said, come on, we'll give you a ride back home um, since your, your van is stuck here for the night. We'll give you a ride back home. And, and so we did. It was about a 20, 25-minute drive. And, and during this talk, we, we started uh, asking them where they were from, uh, kind of, and they asked us where we were from, and we told them we were from Southern Seventh-day Adventist School, and that was kind of our doorway into presenting the gospel to them and, and talking with them. And turns out one of them had heard about us, so that was kind of cool. But as we, as we start talking about the gospel, and we start talking and making this gospel presentation to them, there was a mentality present in them that I've seen countless times among the unchurched. See, the gospel, and we're going to go a little bit into it today, but the gospel says, you know, all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? And all have sinned and all need a Savior. And the constant response to that is, well, you know, I'm not a murderer. You know, I've never killed anyone. I don't think I'm that bad. I don't really think I, I need a Savior. You know, I, I, I do volunteer work. I serve people. You know, I'm really nice to my friends. I'm there for them. If they call me at 2, 3 in the morning, I'll answer my phone. This was the mentality that I was presented with. In other words, I'm satisfied with how I am. I don't need your Jesus or I don't need what you have to present to me to be better. That's the mentality that was presented to them or to us from them. And no matter how we tried to counter that mentality, they stuck to their guns. There was going to be no convincing them that they had a need for a Savior. Eventually, we would drop them off and say goodbye, and we continued to pray for them, and obviously now we've, we haven't heard from them ever again, and I have no idea where they went. But you see the difference in experience that we had. One where a man was crying and so thankful to be able to read and grow closer to God. And another that said, no, I'm satisfied with who I am right now and I don't want your God. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that troubles me. That mentality of I'm satisfied with who I am, I'm satisfied with my life, is not only present in the unchurched. It is not only present in those that are not Christian or not Adventist. It, is, it has infected the very pews that we sit in. And it is very, very real and very present in a lot of Christians today. That mentality of I'm satisfied with who I am and I don't want to change. I don't want to be different. Or I don't need God to be different. Now you may be thinking, well, how could you say that? Or I don't feel that way about my life. Or I don't necessarily see that expressed directly. And you're right. It never is or rarely is expressed directly by believers. Rarely will I hear someone say, yeah, I don't need God for this. But it is present in how we act and how we treat others. You've heard the phrase and in, in the, in the, the saying, actions speak louder than words. So the two questions that I want to answer today are this, are these. How has this mentality infected our church, both in here and the church in general? 
And number two is, what do we do about it? So what? And first, we're going to dig into John chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verses 31. Or verse 31 is where we're going to begin. I want to lay some groundwork so that we understand exactly what is happening. Uh, Jesus has been preaching to the Jews and specifically the Pharisees throughout John chapter 8. And he has just finished explaining, hey, I'm the light of the world and, and I'm here because my Father sent me. I speak on my Father's authority. If you believe me, you would believe the Father. That is what he has been preaching. And some have left... Some have rejected this teaching and left his presence, but others have stayed. And that is where we pick up in verse 31. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, notice what the Jews responded to him. We are children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. In other words, they've been Jews all their life. It's in their blood, literally. They've never had this problem. They have never perceived them being slaves to anything. And yet Jesus counters, if you sin, you are a slave to sin. And the word for slave in the Greek is the word doulos. And I know that as we talk about slavery in the Old Testament, we talk about slavery in the New Testament, there's, there's a whole bunch of gymnastics that go on to try and explain slave as being anything less than a forced servant. But the word doulos means slave. As in, you are not free. You are owned by another. You do not have the free will to choose another way of life. You don't get to free yourself. Literally, it's devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. It doesn't necessarily mean you're the one disregarding your own interests. But it does mean the interests of your master take place over your own. Now, there are three main ways that a slave throughout history and otherwise could escape. There are more, but there are three main ways that a slave gets free. The first is that they escape. They escape their master. They run away from wherever it is that they were enslaved. Number two, the master lets them go voluntarily. And number three, they are set free by someone else. Those are the three main ways. There are more, but those are the three main ways. In regards to slavery into sin, which Jesus very, very much makes the claim, if anyone commits sin, he is a slave to sin. In regards to slavery into sin, there is no escaping a master that is present everywhere. 
You see, if you were a slave in the, in the 1700s and the 1600s or any time throughout history, typically you were a slave to an owner of a property, and if you could escape from that property, then you were free as long as you were never brought back. Right? Your master only existed on that property. But in regards to sin, sin doesn't have property. Sin follows you. There is no running from it because you're running from something that literally you take with you. So you can't escape it. And sin never just lets people go. It is very, very rare that I hear when someone is fighting an addiction or fighting a problem, they said, yeah, one day I just decided not to do it anymore, so I don't. Very rare. Sin doesn't just let people go. Which leaves us with the only other option of the three main ways. Someone has to set us free. So Jesus, who has just finished saying, I come from the Father, my Father has given me authority, I am, if you believe in my words, then you believe in my Father, and then he says, the Son sets you free. In other words, I have come to set you free. That is the claim that he makes. And he says, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Not you have the choice to go back. <laughs> Not you're going to be stuck there for a while, but you are free indeed. Here's the thing. Scripture doesn't seem to be very concerned with what you've done. It doesn't seem to rank our sins in comparison to someone else's sin. Well, I haven't killed someone like he has, or I haven't lied as much as she has. That comparison game that we play. No, you see, the only thing Scripture seems to be concerned with is that you've sinned at all. Not what you've done, but that you have done anything at all. Now, yes, there are varying consequences and punishments for sin. But within the eyes of the law, within the eyes of sin, you break one law, you break, you've broken the law. That is what Scripture seems concerned with. Paul, the missionary, he writes to the church in Rome. He says in Romans 3.23 that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And just three chapters later, in chapter 6, he says, But the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, Savior if you have accepted that gift by turning away from your sin and asking for forgiveness of your sin, then truly the Son has set you free just as Jesus claimed he would. Now go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Because here Paul does make an interesting point. We're going to be Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Now for, for context, Paul is talking about Jesus setting us free by his sacrifice on the cross. You see, he paid a price for us because slaves, no matter what, they always seem to come with a price. And so Paul wants to clarify something. We're going to be in verse 15. 
He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, then you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is the same slave that Jesus just said, you are if you sin. This is the same type of thing. And what Paul essentially says is you have two choices and there is no in-between. Either you are in slavery to your sin, or you are a slave to righteousness. In other words, if you have have decided to follow Jesus, if Jesus has set you free, you don't have any other option now. You are now a slave because you have been bought with a price. Now, the word slave is negative, don't get me wrong, it has negative connotations. And this tends to feel very limiting to people. And it it, it arises this, this level of discomfort. Because it feels like I don't have free will or I can't make my own decisions. And so I want to, if you are thinking that, if you feel that, I want to give you this illustration. Because I think this tends to explain it very well. I want you to consider a fish in the ocean. Now at any point in time, that fish could swim up to dry land and think, man, I really want to know what it's like out there. I really want to know what it's like out on that dry land. And at any point, a swim can gather up enough, a fish can gather up enough speed and pop out of the water and land on dry land. What happens when they do that? They die. They suffocate. Even though it's perfectly free to jump out of that water. If it does, you and I know it will die. So then I would argue that a fish is most free within the boundaries of the water that it is in. A fish is most free to live when it stays within those boundaries. And here's the problem. If a fish jumps out of that water, unless he landed really close to it, there's no getting back in. If a whale washes up on the beach, it typically takes a whole team of people getting it back into the water. They don't get back in on their own, and if they don't get back in in time, they die. The only way for them to live is if someone comes by, sees them in time, and pushes them back in. You see, in in our relationship with God, in our Christianity, we are most free within the boundaries that God has placed within our lives. We are the most free when we follow Jesus and follow what he has asked us to do, right? And he says, hey, I have come so that you may have life and may have it abundantly. So his intention is not to let us, but to keep us safe from what happens if we jump outside of the boundary. Slavery to sin is leaving that boundary and we cannot get ourselves back in. Yet Jesus, knowing what would be at stake, saw that we had left the boundary jumps out and gets us back in. 
knowing that he would suffocate in our place. The beauty of it is that Jesus managed to be the only being that could get out of the boundary and get back in. He did what no one else could. You are most free then in the boundaries God has set up for you within Christianity, within Adventism. And this is what slavery to righteousness looks like. Living within those boundaries so that you can be the most free that you can and have the life that God wants you to have and has called you to live. And with all of that foundation laid, let's turn to our final passage in Galatians chapter 4. I've just called you slaves. Paul has called you slaves. And I want to make the disclaimer here that Paul also wrote to the Galatians. And the Galatians were known for one thing, backsliding. And if you don't know what that term is, basically that is when someone becomes a Christian and they, they start to slide backwards into their old life. And for the Galatians, what this meant was they saw that Jesus had set them free, but they, tried to, they struggled with letting go of those old traditions of the past and those old ways of following the law. And so they started trying to keep the law to earn their salvation, even though they had already gotten it for free through Christ's sacrifice. And so Paul has to write to them to set the record straight to say, no, 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 we left that all in the past. We live here now in the present with Jesus. So let's begin in verse 3 of chapter 4. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law. God sent his son outside of the boundary to get those outside of the boundary back in. so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. In other words, Jesus bought us with a price, we are technically his slaves, and then he takes up that contract and says, you're a son, and you are going to receive full inheritance. Jesus takes that label of a slave, and he transforms it into the label of a son and a daughter of God. A much different attitude to have, and it was his choice to make. It's like a holy promotion, and everybody gets a race. Now I want to continue reading in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In other words, the Galatians were taking their old life before Christ 
and they were trying to apply it and bring it and carry it over into their new life with him. This was the issue that they were facing. To personify this a little bit, I'll give you this example. I was in a relationship once where it wasn't exactly the healthiest, and I remember thinking every single Friday night, I could expect that we would get into an argument. Every single Friday night, like clockwork, there would be some sort of argument because the week was over, and all of a sudden, all the stress and all the burdens of the week would get released, and we would argue every single Friday night like clockwork. Well, that relationship would eventually end, and I would enter into a new relationship, and a a year later, in the middle, one Friday night came, and I remember feeling that apprehension that I used to feel every Friday night because I felt like a fight was coming. Except with this new relationship, the fight never came. That wasn't an issue for us anymore. And so I had a choice to make. Was I going to hold on to that apprehension from my past relationship? Or was I going to give this new relationship its own merit, its own trust, and let things happen how they would? That's the choice that I had to make. And this is the choice that every Christian has to make. Am I going to bring in all of the stuff from my past, or am I going to leave it there? And am I going to move forward into something beautiful? Something that is decided by its own merit. This is how sanctification works. As we grow in a relationship with God and we get involved in the church, we put away our old life and we put on a new one. And as insecurities and and, and sins are revealed from our past, as they come up, as we encounter them, we hit a fork in the road every single time. When I realize that there is some unchecked sin in my life or unchecked insecurity in my life, then I have to make the choice every time one comes up to say, am I going to hold on to this and let it affect my present? Or am I going to let go and follow Jesus? Damage comes when people try to do both. That is when all of the damage comes. This is one of the hardest and one of the biggest dangers for those like me who have grown up in the church. And here is why. For those of us that have grown up in the church or second, third, fourth, fifth generation Adventists, there was no time before Adventism for us to have a reference point to. Which means it's a lot harder for me to look at my old life and and see all of the things that were in it. See, if I grew up Adventist, then all of the personality traits, all of the things and the parts of me that make me who I am, I will associate with that identity within Adventism. Which means this, if I grew up as a kid that was a bully, then chances are I'm going to associate that mean side of my personality with my Adventism. And I'm just going to turn into a mean Adventist. Or a mean Christian. It doesn't always happen this way but it's a risk and it's hard to see because there is no clear line of before and after. I'll read a quote from When God Interrupts, Finding New Life Through Unwanted Change uh, by M. Craig Barnes that shows us what happens when both the churched and the unchurched refuse to acknowledge and give up those parts. 
So as early in the Christian journey, we can easily change. But often that is little more than substituting one compulsion for another. People who craved power before they met Jesus quickly find position of power within the church. People who once escaped from their problems in the culture of alcohol and drugs can now escape in the Christian subculture, where we offer a less destructive means of remaining numb and avoiding reality. It is an improvement, but we are essentially exchanging one set of addictions for another. People who were essentially nice before they really started their Christian journey are going to make nice Christians. And people who were jerks before they became Christians are now going to become jerks who learn a lot of theology. When we refuse to let go of those insecurities, we bring them in with us and we project them onto our Christian life. The content of my sin might be more holy or righteous, but I am not. If I was power hungry before I became a Christian and I seek to to take power in a church, then I'm going to abandon that church the second I don't get what I want. And I'm going to demonize the church as if it's the problem for not fulfilling my desire and my need. I posted this excerpt that I'm about to read to you on Facebook this week as a sort of trailer, and a few people shared it. And it's gone a little ways, and everyone took it, and not everyone, but a few people took it to mean that I'm bashing Adventism with this, and, I'm, and I want to make the disclaimer here that I'm not. I love Adventism. But have you ever met a person, I like to call them I told you so people? People who every chance they get will tell you, I told you so, I told you so, and will, will look for that opportunity any chance they get to be right. You see, these kind of people will often sacrifice friendships over their need to be right. It's like an addiction. And they get so much satisfaction from being right that they'll do anything to chase after it. Putting Adventism into the hands of someone addicted to being right is like putting beer into the hands of an alcoholic. Because all we've done to someone who has not repented of this addiction to being right is given them another tool to fulfill their addiction. You see, if Adventism claims truth, which we do and I believe we have truth, then all it becomes is another way for me to be right and you to be wrong, which means I'm going to be right no matter what it costs. This is where we get Bible bashing. All they get to do is say, I told you so. And the problem with this is that these people will often believe they are doing the right thing and be in the right the whole time, even though they are doing nothing but causing damage. And this kind of behavior destroys disciples. It does not create them. And when it's brought to their attention, they have a choice to make. Will I hold on to wanting to be right all the time? Or will I let go of this need to be right and keep walking with Jesus? And for someone like that, maybe that just means I I step down from any teaching position I've had for a bit and I start listening instead of being the one that talks. You see, someone addicted to the spotlight will always seek it in a church. All we do is replace the content of our sins when we leave them unchecked. 
But once we fully open ourselves up to change and we let go of the past, then we can live in that freedom that God offers us. So that all answers our first question of how has it infected us? So my second question is this, what do we do about it? Every single one of us, myself included, should be praying actively to say, God, reveal what it is in my life that I've been holding on to. Reveal those past insecurities and those past sins and give me the strength and the courage to give them up. And as we encounter them, we need to be willing to give them up. But I won't lie to you, it's painful. And oftentimes the way he reveals them or the way they are revealed hurt. And I think that's what makes Christianity so hard. I kind of, I, I laugh a little bit and I shouldn't when, when, when so a non-believer tells me that I took Christianity because it's the easy way out. Because it's full of hope for the future and I just want that. But in reality, Christianity holds up a mirror to yourself all day long and shows you all of the ways in which you've fallen short. And at the same time, points you to a greater light, which is Jesus. But it's hard to look at yourself in the mirror and to be honest about who you are and where you've come and where you've come from. That's difficult. We are constantly asking God to hold that mirror up and to chisel off the parts that don't reflect his love and his character. So maybe that means stepping down from a leadership position. Maybe it means a change in commitments or responsibilities at work, at home, or in the church. Maybe it means changing the way that you interact with others. Whatever it is, my challenge to you today is that you would not consider yourself exempt from this. That you would not think that this isn't your problem. That you would be open to whatever it is that you might still be holding on to and be willing to let go. We'll close with this. Ephesians 4, Paul shares these words. He says, That is not the way you've learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So together and individually, let us commit putting off that old self and leaving it there and putting on our new self, which is made in the likeness of God.